Okay, if you have your Bibles, open them, if you will, to Romans chapter 3. We're going to look at a couple of uh, verses. Um, I'm not going to read the passage in Hebrews yet, although it's in your bulletin. We'll just read the passage uh, uh, from, from Romans. So now hear God's word. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. This is the word of the Lord. You know, every year at Advent I try to remind us, all of us, that the real miracle of Christmas is not that Jesus was born of a virgin as miraculous as that is, that's not the real miracle of Christmas. The real miracle of Christmas is that he was born at all. The very fact that Jesus, the Son of God, came to our earth, took on flesh, and became like us in every single way is the true miracle. God was under no obligation to send his Son. Uh, Jim and Katie are here today from Cloud Haven, and you may remember uh, Mike Malone used to say this a lot in church. He would say, uh, God doesn't love you because Jesus came and died for you. God loves you and sent his son to die for you. So it's that posture that we should look for every Christmas. We should ask the same question that Anselm, St. Anselm asked, Cur Deus Homo, why the God-man? Why did Jesus become a human being? And when I started uh, getting my resources together for this series, I just started writing down scriptures, most of them from just that jumped in my head that had to do with the Incarnation. And I filled up an entire page, two columns, handwritten, and was working on the second page. When I finally, I was so excited, I texted Dawson and said, I'm so excited. Didn't you remember? I said, I can't, we're going to be able to do this for the next 10 years. (laughs) There's so many scriptures. So anyway, Dawson and I picked a few. And uh, so remember, the miracles of Christmas are many. Mary being uh, uh, pregnant without the usual means, and being born, and Jesus being born of a virgin, one of them. But the real miracle is why he was born at all. Dr. Michael uh, Williams from Covenant Seminary, I don't know, did you have him in seminary? Mike Williams? Listen to what he says. The general trajectory, listen to this, the general trajectory of relationship between God and his people is from heaven to earth rather than from earth to heaven. This is the flow of movement and energy, the direction of travel that we see in Scripture. The biblical hope is not 
one of man going to God. It is not the story of the ascent of man. Rather, it is a story of God coming to man in man's createdness, redeeming both man and creation. Unlike other religions, Christianity insists, it insists on the inability of man to reach God. We just don't have the resources, folks. We don't have the we, we don't have the imagination to even comprehend all that God is and, and, and his very being is beyond our comprehension, albeit we can apprehend. We can get our arms around him part of the way, but we certainly cannot encompass all there is to know about an infinite God. And so he makes the move looking down on the earth and sin and evil, and there's a lot of questions about that, and we're very happy to talk about them with you. There are answers to those questions about why is there evil, why is there suffering, why would God create a world like this? I mean, what was he, was he on an off day or what? What was the reason? We don't have perfect answers, but we have good answers, better than any religion on the face of the earth. One of the answers is Christmas. Just that and what we're attempting to do. Unlike other religions, Christianity insists on our inability. Humans, we're not born as the old scholars used to say, tabula rasa or blank slate. We're not born just a blank slate. We already have capacity for sin the moment we're born. We're on a, we're, we're on a track that we cannot escape unless God comes and rescues us completely on his own, plus nothing on our part. We don't get born good and then turn bad. We're already born with the pollution, the corruption of sin from time immemorial, and we have no way to deal with it. If you have questions about that, there are good answers, but let's move on. This series, Cordes Homo, Why the God-Man, Why the Incarnation. And so I'm going to talk today about uh, something we call propitiation. Uh, In some of your Bibles, it'll say expiation. Now, those are big words, and I know maybe you get frightened, but if, if you don't learn a lot of theological terms, these are two you should know. And you can, I'll be happy to give you the formal definition. Propitiation, expiation. What is that all about? Why did Jesus come? He had to do this. He came to make propitiation. He came to do something about our sin. He did not come just to be a good guy and kind of teach good lessons and have people try to uh, uh, be just like him or follow his example. You cannot follow his example because you're not him. He is utterly unique. He is monogene, the one, the only begotten of the Father before all worlds. As the Nicene Creed says, light of light, very God of very God. That's who we're talking about. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a teacher. The scriptures do not allow that. Sometimes I wish they would. He's just another person, just another good person. And he's just coming to show us how to be good. 
And folks, if that was all it was, then our Bibles would be a list of rules. The whole thing would be filled with rules. And as I've told you time and again, you can take all the rules that are in the Bible, all of them, and put them on a couple of pages. In fact, if you want to distill it even further, it's the Ten Commandments. And if you want to distill that even further, it's love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord God and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you want to distill that even further, it's just, are you able, do you have it in your capacity to love God completely? Because if you do, then you will love your neighbor as yourself. It just, it will happen. You can't help yourself if you're loving God. The Apostle John said it's impossible to say you love God and you don't love your neighbor. It's not possible. So the Bible is not a book of rules. It's not a handbook on how you're to live your life. There's just not enough information in there for it to be that. But I'll tell you what it is. It's a book full of stories. And every one of those stories is pointing to broken people and a redeeming God, a forgiving God, a God who says this, Where are you? Not, I see you. Where are you? Not, I see you. And that, from Genesis 3 on, is his posture. Where are you? I'm looking for you. I'm coming for you. I want you. My arms are open. Come to me. But we had no way of getting there. We needed something. And that's where propitiation comes in. So look at these first two verses in Romans 3. They explain, uh, and there's context, but we... We're probably going to start in February 2022, a series in the book of Romans. That's what, uh, uh, so far, that's what the Holy Spirit is telling me to do. Do Romans. I keep telling him no, he keeps telling me yes. Because Romans, Romans is a very f- robust book. But nevertheless, we're taking this and just putting it out there on its own. And look at what he says. God has shown, after he's described in the first two chapters... Paul describes humanity sold to sin. Can't get out of it. Then he starts including the Jewish nation. They're no different. They're also enslaved in sin. Then he comes to this and he says, these are familiar to many of you. God has shown a way to be made right or justified or made righteous before him apart from the requirements of the law. This is not just the moral law, the Ten Commandments. This was all the regulations of the law. Everything. Primarily circumcision, how you got into or become part of God's people. He's saying, even if you're circumcised, that doesn't mean that you're automatically in God's good graces. Or if you're baptized as a Christian, doesn't mean you're automatically in God's good graces. They're signs and seals, they're promises to us. And they mean something. God has shown us a way to be made right with him apart from those requirements of the law by placing faith in Jesus Christ. You see, if you were an Old Testament person, you didn't get saved by works. That's a heresy. You were saved by grace. And your works were simply a sign or or a, a, a fruit that you were producing out of a life that had been already regenerated by God. There's never been any other way of salvation, folks, since Genesis chapter 3. It has never changed. Where are you? 
Not I see you. It's always been in God. God slaughtered the animals to cover Adam and Eve because they pathetically tried to sow fig leaves and cover themselves. No matter who we are, the author says here, Paul, for all, and he uses an expression in Greek, all without exception. There's no exception to this. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. There's no, there's no human being that has ever matched that apart from our Savior Jesus, who was not just reflecting the glory of God, but is the glory of God itself. That's the problem we have. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory. From from the time we're cognizant that we're even aware, we're always, it's there, innate, in our DNA. Not biological DNA, in our spiritual DNA. Something's wrong, and we know it. Try as hard as we might. We know that we don't have the currency, we don't have the money. In Arabic, it's Masadi. We don't have the Masadi. In Spanish, it's Dinero. We don't have the Dinero. We don't have the capital. We don't have what it's going to take to appease or pay for this sin that is in our lives, no matter how big or how little. Now, people in the modern world, you know, we don't like this. We are, especially in America and the West, we do, you know, we live in a meritocracy where everything is transactional. And that's true until it comes to God. Because of who He is, not because of you. How would you transact with an infinite God? How would you give and take when everything you have is a gift already? Even the breath in your lungs doesn't belong to you, it belongs to Him. So God does, he sets up a meritocracy. You know, work hard, you get ahead. But not with him. He carves himself out and he says, you don't deal with me this way. There's a problem. You don't have enough money. You don't have an exchange. I breathed life into you. I gave you the Imago Dei. I put the Imago Dei in you. There's no possibility for you to come to me because I made you. We're not autonomous. We belong to him. And I think that in, especially in our modern time, we think we own ourselves, that we have rights. And I tell you, you have rights, folks, under a constitution or maybe in another country under their constitution or laws. I don't know. Yeah, you have those rights, but you don't have any other rights as a Christian. Your rights are subsumed all in your faith in Jesus Christ. You lay the sword of your life at His feet and you tell Him, command me, I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. And we give up everything. And that's hard. It's not easy to reconcile those being a citizen of the U.S. or another country or being a citizen of heaven. Those things are not easy. There's tension already built in. But the bad news, and it torments us to the extent, here's what human beings do. We lower our standards. We'll say things like this. See if this is familiar. Well, I'm I'm not as bad as, and then you roll out your list of people, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer, Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, 
you know, Obama bin Laden, whoever you want to, uh, Osama bin Laden. Uh, that was a slip, a Freudian slip. Osama bin Laden. doesn't matter. You roll out your list of bad guys. Well, I'm not as bad as them, uh, or I'm better than them. I, I, I'm doing the best I can. Are you really doing the best you can? Do you really want us to scratch that scab and see if you're doing the best you can? I'll bet we can get it to bleed if we scratch it just a little bit. I bet it won't take much because we know we're not doing the best we can. No. The bad news is we need, we need somebody. We don't need somebody to come give us a good example. That would just crush us. We need somebody to come and save us. To make propitiation for us. That's the problem. So look at 24 and 25. This is what, where we find the place and the definition, if you will, for this huge theological uh, thing we call propitiation, atonement, redemption. All of these things are wrapped up. They're all part and parcel of one thing, God paying a price for us. St. Anselm wrote Cur Deus Homo, by the way, to put forward his uh, theory, if you will. I want to call it a theory. I don't think they're theories, but that's what theologians like to call them. Theories of the atonement, the satisfaction view. And he makes a compelling case for it, which I agree with, as are some of the other theories of atonement. It's not one or the other, folks. They're all contributing to what God does for us in propitiation, in redemption, in expiation. I'll explain it in a moment. So look at verse 24 and 25. We are justified. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then the phrase continues. And are justified or made right with God by His grace as a gift. You see, it's not something you can pay for or gain on your own. He's got to give it to you. It's from Him, from His love, His largesse. It flows from that. Through redemption in Jesus, redemption is a word that means to pay a price, whom God put forward as a propitiation. This is fascinating. By His blood to be received by faith. Okay, here's the theology lesson. This is important. I am going to talk theology with you, and I hope you'll think theologically as best you can. The word propitiation is a Greek word. It's hilasterion. It's a noun, hilasterion. It's only used two times in your Bible. Once here by the Apostle Paul, and a second time in the book of Hebrews, actually in Hebrews 9.5, where the writer of Hebrews is describing the tabernacle and the beauty and the glory. And when he comes to the ark, think uh, Harrison Ford and Raiders of the Lost Ark, he, the, the, the ark, and over the ark, there's this, the top is gold, and over that golden top, there's two cherubim that are folded over, bowing down with their wings over them, and they're looking, covering the top of this mercy seat. Mercy seat. Hilasterion. It's not a verb, it's a noun. It's used by Paul. Jesus is put forward by his Father as a mercy seat, as the 
Mercy, this is the place in Leviticus 16 where the high priest once a year would kill a goat and would take the blood of the goat and dip his finger in that blood and go behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies where that ark was. Nobody could see it. And the ark was God's footstool. So up above it in the invisible room, God was somewhere seated up there. And only his feet are here on this mercy, this gold lid with the angels. And the priest would take the blood and he would sprinkle it seven times around the ark. And the blood would hit the ark and the top of the mercy seat. Then their sins were propitiated. They were satisfied. They were forgiven. They were covered. All the words you want to use, they were dealt with. But then, the priest would go outside and he would get the other goat. See, they had two. One was killed. The other goat, the priest, the high priest, would lay his hands on the head of the goat and he would confess all the sins of the people of the nation of Israel. Imagine how long that must have taken. Anyway, he would pronounce the sins of the people, probably in a condensed form, and then they would haul, listen carefully, they would take this goat, this scapegoat, out into the wilderness, and they would let it go where it would be destroyed or eaten by animals or, you know, it was just on its own, outside the camp. Think with me, folks. Paul said, God the Father put Jesus forward as the mercy seat, the place where this transaction takes place and you and I have nothing to do with it. We are merely observers and then recipients. We observe and we receive by faith. Just because God said we're going to trust him. Just trust him. Listen to what uh, one theologian uh, scholar, Douglas Moo, in his commentary. This is fantastic. Listen. Since only the only other New Testament occurrence in Hebrews 9.5, Hilasterion refers to this mercy seat. It seems likely that Paul means that Jesus Christ is the New Testament counterpart to the mercy seat. At this mercy seat was the place where God took care of people's sin. So now Jesus Christ has been presented publicly as the place where God now deals finally, listen, finally and forever with his people's sin. Atonement, propitiation, expiation, now takes place in Him. And this atonement, as in the Old Testament, includes both, listen carefully folks, important, both forgiveness of sin and propitiation. Both. So what does that mean? Well, R.C. Sproul used to love to say that propitiation is the death of the animal. It's God covering your sin. Expiation or taking it away like that sign back there. R.C. actually would do this. He would point to the, remember? He would point at the exit sign and he would say, see the exit? That's expiation. He's going to take your sins and he's going to send your sins out into the wilderness to be put to death 
forever. He's putting your sins away. Exit out there where they can never return. He never remembers your sins against you. It's not that he ever forgets. God can't forget. But he uses a metaphor. He says, I'm going to put my sins as far away from you out there as the east is from the wild. I'll remember your iniquities no more. What he's saying, I'm going to put them so far away it would be like they never existed. They're gone. So he not only takes them away, but then he does, he pays the price. He satisfies the debt that we have incurred. Folks, if you don't understand that you have a debt to God for all this wickedness that we do, even sometimes it's just slight stuff, but we just take advantage. Sometimes it's just saying something as benign as this, which I don't think is benign. We'll say, well, I'm going to sin, I know I'm going to sin, but you know God's going to forgive me. Really? Well, you just sinned. That's a sin of presumption. Who do you think you are? You're going to sin and say, oh, but he's so loving, he'll forgive me. No. He doesn't have to forgive you. See, if you don't understand that, how is sin ever going to become distasteful to you? It doesn't mean that you'll ever stop. But what it does mean is after you sin, you're going to feel what? Guilt. Shame. Embarrassment. What you will never feel and should never feel is condemnation. But God will deal with your conscience and he'll say, no, no cookies for you. You don't steal cookies from me. You know, I'll give you, if you want a cookie, I'll give you a cookie. But don't sneak down there when nobody's around and take the cookies on your own. You see, he's saying, come to me. Don't fool around with God. Don't presume. That's not faith. That's presumption. So God does this double thing that is so glorious. He propitiates or satisfies God's wrath by dying, Jesus dying, or the lamb, the scapegoats. All those images were to flood our minds. But he does more than that. He takes the scapegoat, not you, but something else, and sends it out into the darkness, the forsakenness, the empty, the wrath, the tohu, the bohu, the formless and the void of Genesis chapter 1 that God hovered over and saw the chaos, the dark, the destruction, the demons, the satanic world that was there controlling. And he says something to that world. Light be. And he puts light and destroys the darkness. Nothing that you could possibly do. So let's read the portion now from Hebrews, and we'll finish with this, folks. And I hope this, I hope you have questions about this. I, you know, that raises a lot of questions. If you have questions, come talk to us. We're happy to, to discuss these things with you. But look at this passage in Hebrews. I'm going to read it, the whole part. And I'm going, to t- I'm going to show you how the connection is. We've, we've looked at the problem. And then we've looked at the place. Now we're going to look at the person who is the place. Because forgiveness and propitiation and expiation, these are not just big uh, $2 words that are, you know, for you to, oh, I know these, uh, these fancy theological words. No, no, they don't, would mean nothing. They would just be abstract until you take what happens at the place 
and you see it in a person. You see it in a face, in a person that can look back at you, that you can touch the wound in his You can touch the print of the nails. You can see the blood streaming down his face. You can see the love coming out of his eyes for you. You can see it, you can feel, you can have this man. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Dawson's going to talk about that next week. And deliver all who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his people. He had to be a human. He had to become a human in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God. To make, here it is, to make propitiation. Now, he doesn't use hilasterion, the, the noun. He uses hilaskomai, the verb. He said he is going to do something. Propitiate. Hilaskomai. He's going to make propitiation for the sins of his people because he suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted that are being tempted. You know, I, I, the pastor of our church, I've been here 18 years. I know a lot of you. I don't know everybody. And I know that a lot of you lie to me about your sins. Uh, and, and I can assure you, I lie to you about my sins. I don't want you to know any of my sins because you'll use them against me. Right? See, Ugo says yes. He, did, he would use them against me. We are all aware of our sins. And some of us, we're not even aware of some of our sins. It takes someone else to tell us, you know, that's, that's not a good thing. What you're doing there is going to mess you up bad. One of the benefits of membership is that your session and your elders will come and tell you, don't do that. That's bad. Listen to me. That's what we're here for. But we also help each other. But our sins are there. And we try to satisfy we try to do better. Dawson said it last week in his sermons really good. You know, when you do, when you do something bad, what do you, what's the first inclination that comes to your mind? To go and do something good to offset the bad, right? I mean, that's what we try to do. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that again. Oh, I'm going to feel really bad. Okay, now I'm going to unplug my computer and smash the monitor so I never look at those dirty pictures again. And I'm going to hide the liquor. I'm going to lock it and throw the key down somewhere where I don't know where it is so I can't drink anymore. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do, I'm going to get up early at 6 o'clock in the morning. I'm going to read my Bible for five minutes. <laughs> we try to do something to propitiate, to satisfy, to expiate, to take our sin, to get it away, because we know we can. We're trying. And what does old Pastor Chuck always tell you? What do I say? Three words. Run to Jesus. What are you doing? Don't pick that thing up. You're already messed up now. Run. Run with your, all your might. Don't try to satisfy. You don't have the currency. You don't have enough of it. Even if you had it, you wouldn't have enough. Run to Him. 
with all your junk. Throw it at his feet and say, I messed up again. What do you think he's going to do? Hold his nose? Do you think he's going to kick dust in your face? Get away from me, you loser. I know we all think that's what he'll do, but instead he, he, he says, where are you? Come here. Not I see you. Jesus was fully God and fully man, and that's why, he propi- that's why he could propitiate. That's why he could satisfy for our sins. Every year, I have to remind you of this great Scottish Presbyterian minister and scholar, uh, James Stewart. One of my favorites. He's uh, not known by a lot of people, but he's great. Listen to what he said about this very thing, about Jesus the God-man, the man who was also God, the Son of God, same substance as the Father. Listen, what kind of man is this? All man and yet all God. He brings together in his being a startling coalescence of contrarieties. In Jesus we see that he was the meekest and lowliest of the sons of men, yet he spoke of coming on the clouds of heaven with the glory of God. He was so austere that he said the demons cried out in terror at his coming, yet he was so genial, so winsome, so approachable that the children loved to play with him and the little ones nestled in his arms. His presence at the innocent gaiety of a village wedding was like the presence of sunshine. No one was half so kind towards sinners. Yet no one ever spoke so red-hot scorching words about sin. A bruised reed he would not break. His whole life was love. Yet he demanded of the Pharisees how they would expect to escape the damnation of hell. He was a dreamer of dreams and a seer of visions. Yet for stark realism, he masterfully strode into the temple and the hucksters and the money changers fell over themselves from the fire they saw blazing in his eyes. He saved others, but at the last, himself he did not save. There is nothing, listen, there is nothing in history like the union of contrasts that confront us in the Gospels. The mystery of Jesus the mystery of divine personality. Until you embrace this king, this man, you can't understand the Father and you certainly won't understand the Holy Spirit. You can't see him. How will you know God until you embrace his son and all that he did for you and for me and trust him? Will you trust him? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, how can we ever thank you for the gift of your son at Christmas time? We think of all these gifts we give to one another. We even talk about Christ being a gift to us, but I wonder if we really understand that. And I pray that this Christmas will be 
special for all of us and each of us in our own way, for our church, for Cristo Rey, for our congregations to fully embrace the gift of your Son, our Savior Jesus. That beauty, the, the beauty of his holiness and yet the beauty of his humanity, both all together in one magnificent human being who loved us and gave himself for us. I pray this Christmas, Father, you'll make that real to us and every day in the year to come. We pray this in your wonderful name. Amen.